I want to start uh, by contextualizing our preaching text historically. I want to read to you uh, a small section that was written by uh, Tacitus about persecutions that were taking place against the Christians in A.D. 64. So the context of what we're going to read to, to get us started is that there was a great fire in Rome in the early 60s. And we don't really know for sure who started the, the, the fire. At the time, there was a suspicion that Nero himself, the emperor, might have started the fire. So he needed somebody to blame, so he blamed the Christians. Whether or not it was Nero or not, I think we can be fairly certain it was not the Christians. Uh, but Nero blamed the Christians, and so a great persecution broke out against the Christians as they were scapegoated, or they were blamed for, uh, the burning of the major section of the city of Rome. So I want to just read about that. There was arrest. Arrests were made first for those who confessed, not to setting the fire, but to being Christians, because they were looking for Christians. Then on their evidence, that is these arrested Christians, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so much on the charge of arson, setting fire to the city, but because of the hatred of the human race. This is a secular Roman historian acknowledging how unfair this was. Besides being put to death, these Christians were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clad in the hides of beasts, torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others were set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero had thrown open his grounds for this display and was putting on a show in the circus where he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer and drove about in his chariot. All this gave rise to a feeling of pity even toward men whose guilt merited the most exemplary punishment for it was felt that they were being destroyed not for the public good but to gratify the cruelty of an individual. What Tacitus is getting to there is Nero would bury Christians in his back garden and he would invite all kinds of people in and he would drive up and down his gardens like a charioteer and just sort of having a lot of fun while these Christians buried up to their waist were tarred and thrown on fire from the waist up and that was what was providing the light for his chariot. Other Christians were nailed to the top of poles and set on fire some height from the ground. All of the pretext for this was that apparently these Christians had set fire to Rome. Now why do I read this? I mean, we're starting a series on baptism. Why, why do I start with this visit into history, the suffering of Christians in the 60s, just some 30 years after Jesus died and was rose, raised from the dead. The reason is because our preaching text was written probably a year or two before this great persecution. There was already an awareness that to be a Christian was to endure suffering. Of course, it got a lot worse with Nero in 64, but it had been bad for many, many years. 
There were 10 great waves of persecution that the early church faced. And then there was this enduring persecution, martyrdom, crucifixion, as you, as you heard in the reading. And so what I'm about to read, we have to contextualize this whole letter of 1 Peter within the suffering of the early church. And the text I'm going to read itself, the context of this passage, which talks about baptism, the context in the letter of 1 Peter is suffering. Suffering. And what we're going to see today is that baptism is a public decision made by the one being baptized to suffer with Christ. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 18 to 22. This is the word of God. Would you please stand? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few... That is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we don't often equate suffering with baptism or baptism with suffering. Moreover, we don't often think that to be a Christian is to voluntarily, at the beginning of our walk with Christ, declare that we are ready to suffer and to die even if you ask us to for the faith that we profess in Jesus Christ. So this morning will be challenging for us because we have to get outside of our experience. We have to get outside of maybe our hopes or expectations for our life and to recognize that we have signed up to be crucified with Christ. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move among us. Help us to see what it is that we have joined ourselves to when we have joined ourselves to Christ, a life of suffering. I pray that as we learn about baptism, we would see the connection. Speak through me, in spite of me. Glorify yourself and build up your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As I've said, it's not entirely clear at the outset. Is this a sermon about baptism or is this a sermon about suffering? 
Uh, well, really, it's a sermon about suffering, which uses baptism to address the very real problem, if I could call it that, of suffering in the Christian life. Uh, and yet, we're, we're going to preach on this in a series about baptism because suffering is, is a great and wonderful way to understand what it is we declare when we are being baptized. Uh, I've already sketched kind of the context of our preaching text. Let me just give you an even bigger view of this. The, the letter of 1 Peter begins with Peter calling us to recognize the living hope that is ours in Christ. We've been born again unto a living hope. And he talks about all of, all of the good that has been delivered to us by what Jesus has done for us. And he says, in light of all that God has done through Jesus Christ on the cross for you and for me, we were enemies of God, we were sinners deserving of his wrath and judgment, but God sent forth Jesus that we would be born again unto a living hope. That is, we don't have to fear wrath and judgment. We don't, we don't have to pay the penalty for our sin. And then Peter transitions, he says, therefore be holy, not in order to please God, but because God is already pleased with you. Be holy. Don't get caught up in the triviality and the mundane uh, rituals and ebbs and flows of life, but think about eternal things. Think about the big picture. You've been bought with a price. You are now living stones in God's holy temple. So be holy. And then he gets into, well, what does it mean to be holy? Well, it means you must submit yourself to others. This is totally counterintuitive. The natural heart, that is the unsaved heart, would say, if I am to be holy, I have to be morally good. And when I am morally good, I can set myself above everybody who is not as morally good as I am. But that, that's not the gospel. In fact, what Jesus taught was the first must be last and the last must be first. Uh, the greatest among us would be the servant to all. Therefore, if you want to be great in the kingdom, make yourself last. And, and so then Peter gets in and he starts talking about submission. And submission is a dirty word in our culture, in our world. It always has been. It's not like 2017 Canada is the first time where submission becomes a, a tough issue. Uh, but Paul, Peter goes on and he says, listen, first of all, submit yourself to every human institution. Every human institution, every human institution. Let's start, with, let's start with the emperor. So for us, let's start with the prime minister in the, in the government of Canada. Submit yourself. I don't care what you think of Justin Trudeau. Submit yourself to him and respect him. Honor him, the honor that is due to him. Submit yourself to Kathleen Wynne and the government of Ontario. It doesn't matter what you think of Premier Wynne. Honor her. The honor that she deserves, for God has put her in authority over us. Submit yourself to the mayor of Barrie. If you are in school, submit yourself to the principal and your teachers. He goes on and he says, slaves, submit yourself to your masters. But that's not fair. The gospel should liberate me from my slavery. Yes. But while you're a slave, submit yourself. If you're going to suffer at the hands of an evil master, 
make sure your suffering is because you are submitting to him and do, seeking his good, not because you are seeking to overthrow him. Wives, submit to your husbands. This is one of the hardest submission texts for us because um, it's hit so close to home. Every wife, there's not a lot of slaves in our culture, but and yeah, we can submit to Justin Trudeau and Kathleen Wynne. It's kind of, all right, I don't have to sit down with Prime Minister Trudeau or Premier Wynne every day, but wives, you have, to, you have to go to sleep every night with your husbands, wake up in the morning. And the problem with this text for us is, is even when your husbands are not doing what they ought to be doing, when they're behaving badly, maybe your husband's not saved, or if he is, he's not acting like he's saved. He's not listening to the first part of the book of First Peter. He's not seeking holiness in his life. Submit. And then a verse that often gets missed is, husbands, submit to your wives. Not in the same way that, that wives submit to your husbands, but it says, likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way. How do we submit to our wives? We, we recognize who she is. We recognize her strengths and her weaknesses. We submit ourselves to serving Christ by serving our wives. Oh, should be careful. Serving our wife. <laughs> we serve our wives, plural. Corporately, but each one of us, I serve my wife, not just in her strengths, but in her weaknesses. Then, it's not directly related, but I think this is important, right? I'm trying to give you the context here. Then Peter's like, if you do this, if you seek holiness, if you submit to every human institution, if you... Submit to your husband. If you submit to your wife in serving her, you're going to suffer. Don't be surprised that it's hard to live this way. Of course it's hard. Then he says, suffer for, what is, for doing what is right, not doing what is evil. That brings us back to what I was talking about. Peter is writing to a group of people who are less than a year away from being buried up to their waist and set on fire or being nailed to the top of a pole and being set on fire. Any one of us expecting to suffer like that in the next 12 months? So we could agree that our suffering probably, we don't know for sure, but our suffering for being a Christian probably will be a lesser suffering than the group of people that Peter is writing to. The problem with that then is when we say, I'm going to choose to be a Christian and I'm going to mark it with baptism, we can avoid the, the hard part of being a Christian, which is what are we signing up for? We are signing up for a life of suffering. Christian husbands... To be a husband to your wife is a life of suffering if you're doing it the way Christ calls you to do it. Wives, Christian wives, you're signing up if you're to be a Christian for a life of suffering in submission to your husband. We're going to suffer as we submit to every human institution. Now, there will be some joy in our marriages, I hope. 
right? It's not all drudgery. But why are you surprised when your marriage is hard? Why are you surprised when you're at odds with the government? Why are you surprised when you don't like what your employer is asking you to do? You're going to suffer. That's the context, and, and that's why it's so important, right? Because I could have just sort of wrenched this out of its context and said, let's talk about baptism, which we're going to. But I want you to see what Peter's really trying to address. He's trying to address the hard part of Christian living. We know the easy part. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Have your sins forgiven. Rise from the dead and live forever with him. That, that preaches really well. It's easy to preach that for those who believe. But to, to stand up and say, look, before you're baptized, but before you make a public declaration that you are united with Christ, I want you to know that your life is not going to get any easier. It's going to get harder. And the closer you walk with Christ, the harder it is going to be even still. That's why in verse 18, after talking about Holiness, submission, and suffering. Peter then says, but I want you to put this in perspective. Peter seeks to encourage us, encourage us in this preaching text in three ways. Peter encourages us in the face of suffering by asking us to remember Jesus, to remember Noah, and to remember our baptism. So that will be the structure of our sermon. Uh, in, when you are suffering for being a Christian, whatever that suffering looks like, and I'm not talking about suffering that is common to all men and women who have ever lived. I'm talking about suffering that is uniquely in your life because you have professed Christ as your Lord and Savior. When you're suffering because you're a Christian, I want you to remember Jesus, remember Noah, and remember your baptism. And all three of these go together. Let's talk about remembering Jesus. So we've talked about the context that, that suffering is the context of this passage. Now, for this preaching text itself, I want you to notice how it begins and how it ends. It begins and ends with Jesus. So we're going to begin and we're going to end with Jesus. When you're suffering, says Peter, remember Jesus. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered. So when you're suffering, remember that the founder of your faith, God himself in human form, came and he suffered. If you're going to unite yourself with Christ, remember that Christ also suffered. That Peter's going to describe his suffering. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. So Peter begins with Jesus. When you're suffering, remember Jesus. He ends with Jesus. Go down to uh, verse 21, near the end of verse 21. He reminds us, we're going to fill in the, the difference here, but he reminds us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you're suffering, remember not just the death of Jesus, so he begins with the death of Jesus, the end of verse 21, remember also the resurrection of Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So wrapping our preaching text is remember Jesus. Remember his death on the front end of our text. Remember his resurrection and ascension and power on the back end of our text. Let's just break this down then. What is it 
more specifically that we are to remember about Jesus. So when you're suffering, just go through these stages. Open up this text. Break it down as I'm going to break it down. And you're going to find great comfort for your soul on those hard days. Number one, remember that Jesus also suffered. There's so many implications to this that we can't even get into. Number one, he's our, our model, right? Would we expect that what he experienced, if we are to unite ourselves with him, that we wouldn't ex- uh, experience the same things? Jesus said, uh, don't be surprised when the world hates you. Remember, the world hated me first. No one is greater than his master. Likewise, when you're suffering, don't be surprised. And I think one of the great tragedies of Christian suffering is when it surprises us, when it catches us off guard. We should be right now expecting from this day to our last day, we're going to meet hardships, difficulties, persecutions, suffering. Don't be surprised. So look to Jesus as our model. But more than that, look for, to Jesus for empathy. Jesus suffered. Cry to him on your pillow. Oh, Jesus, this is hard. He's not indifferent to your suffering. He cares and he knows. So whether it's something small, like somebody laughed at you at work, or someone in your family, is this isn't small, but relatively speaking, Someone in your family just doesn't understand you, the decisions that you make. Or it's hard to submit to your husband or your wife or whomever. Or whether it's something big. You lose your job. Or God calls you to give your life. That's not out of the question for any one of us, by the way. God might ask any one of us at any time to give our life for the gospel. Living in Barrie, Ontario doesn't make us immune to that. Jesus cares, and he understands because he also suffered. Secondly, remember that Jesus suffered in our place. So there's a, there's a qualitative difference that, that Jesus didn't need to suffer, but he, he came and he suffered for us. So it just helps us to put it into perspective, and you recognize that, that you've, you've given your life to Jesus because of what he's done for you. He he suffered in our place once for sins. Remember that you were a sinner. And the righteous one came and suffered because of your unrighteousness. My unrighteousness. And, and, And this actually should encourage us and say, well, Jesus, if you could do that for me, I'm going to stick with marriage. I don't know why. I mean, maybe it's the Spirit of God moving me in that way. But have you ever been in a fight with your spouse, your husband or your wife, and you know you're right? You're absolutely right. Well, maybe that's not a time where you're supposed to suffer. Well, wait a minute. Jesus died, he suffered. For our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Will you endure? As Christ suffered, will you suffer in your marriage or in any other relationship? 
Jesus suffered, thirdly, to bring us to God. When you're suffering, remember that you have access to the throne room of God. You, you can march right into the throne room of God with the blood of Jesus dripping off your body. I mean, I'm speaking metaphorically. And you can go to him, and because the blood of Jesus has covered you, our God and Father will say, Child, what is it? Come to me. Come to me. Do you know that before Jesus came and suffered, what God would say is, I condemn you. doesn't matter how hard our life is. God would have condemned us. But now he says, Child, come to me. That makes a difference when we're suffering. Jesus understands your suffering. Jesus died for you so that he could bring you to God in your darkest times. You need not fear him the way you once did. Fourthly, Jesus suffered in our place to bring us to God. Fourth, those who inflicted suffering on him could not touch his spirit. So whatever you're going through suffering, remember that your spirit is hid in Christ. And, and, and people can do whatever they want to you, but they cannot take you out of Christ. They cannot inflict so much pain and suffering on you that they would kill your soul. They cannot touch your soul. They cannot touch your spirit. They cannot take you from the hand of God. They cannot stop you from being raised from the dead unto eternal life. So, so uh, no matter how bad your suffering is, it will never be so bad as to be taken from the hand of God. You will never be made uh, or unmade a child of God. Nobody can remove that from you. Nobody can take from you the inheritance that Christ has lavished upon you. So, so bring on the suffering. I don't actually mean that. Nobody wants to suffer. But, but relative to that, bring it on because I suffer for a time, but you kill me. You kill me. That's the worst suffering that you can, that you can endure. You kill me. And my God will raise me back to life. Do your worst. Sticking with marriage. Maybe you're not in a very good marriage. I'm speaking generally, not to anyone. Or but maybe you feel that your marriage isn't what you want it to be. Well, it's temporary. Your vow is till death do you part. And then you're the bride of Christ forever and ever and ever. Endure. Suffer. And I'm not just talking about bad marriages. You give me the best marriage. If you're, if the, give me the best marriage that has ever been. If the husband and the wife are seeking to honor Christ in that marriage, they're suffering in that marriage as they seek to submit to one another and love one another and serve one another. Because it's not all about you. All of a sudden it's about the other. That's just one illustration. There's so many others that we could do. Now we go down fifth. Jesus was raised from the dead. And we've already talked about this through resurrection. So when you're suffering, remember that just as Christ was raised, so you also will be raised. Uh, sixth, Jesus ascended into heaven. 
right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And so we also will be raised from the dead and we will ascend to be with Christ. And we will see God face to face. And seventh, Jesus is supremely powerful. When Jesus ascended, angels, authorities, and powers were made subject to him. His name is above every name. And we will reign with Christ. You know, we will be exalted with Christ if we humble ourselves with Christ. If we suffer for Christ's sake, we will be exalted above the highest angel. And, and this will be true of us. Angels, authorities, and powers will be made subjected to us. And that also puts our suffering into perspective. It's temporary. Suffer now, endure until the end. And you will be with Christ. When you suffer then, remember Jesus. Remember that Jesus suffered unto death. Remember that Jesus was raised from the dead. Remember that Jesus is supremely powerful. This, this is very pastoral what Peter is doing here. Now, he was like, well, what's this got to do with baptism? We're going to get to that. But, but the, we can't understand baptism, which is being united with Christ, without, without first remembering Jesus Christ and all that he has gone through. Thus, we are to follow Christ's example, and we are to entrust ourselves to the all-powerful God and to suffer with Christ. That's the first thing. Remember Jesus Christ. Second thing, when you're suffering because you're a Christian, remember Noah. Take a look at uh, verses 19 and 20. So we're told that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. Then we're told in which, so Jesus by his spirit, that's what in which means, by his spirit, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now this is an exegetical minefield. Uh, there, are, there are so much disagreement about, uh, among godly men and women about these verses. What in the world is Peter talking about? So we're told that, that God, that Jesus was killed in his body, but they couldn't touch his spirit. And then in the spirit, he is doing some preaching or proclaiming to spirits. These spirits are now in prison. Why are they in prison? Because formerly they did not obey. Who did they not obey? Well, they did not obey God when, well, when God was being patient in the days of Noah, when the ark was being prepared. Remember when just eight people came through the judgment of the flood. So, so I think we could all agree that that's what's being said, but what does it mean? Now, there are two main interpretations to this and countless others that sort of fall all the way between. On the one hand, it may mean this. It may mean that when Jesus was crucified, he didn't go out of existence, right? When he died, his spirit went somewhere. He said to the, to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, it may mean that as part of what Jesus did while he, he was dead, 
his body was in the tomb, was that he went to the prison, the spiritual prison, and proclaimed the gospel, proclaimed his triumph to the spirits there. And these would have been the spirits who did not obey God in the days of Noah. That's one possibility. And that's where you get in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended into hell. This is the verse. This is, this is where that was. Now, there's some versions of the Apostles' Creed where you don't see that, right? Because ever since the Apostles' Creed was written, it wasn't written by the Apostles, by the way. Um, ever since it was written, there's been debate. Did Jesus go down into hell or not or what? What does this exactly mean? Well, it might mean that. It might mean that he went and went to that place where the unsaved demons were kept prisoner and where human beings were kept prisoner. Uh, those unsaved ones waiting for the final judgment. Or it could mean that the Spirit of Christ preached the gospel in the days of Noah through Noah. Let me explain that. So we're told that no, no prophet really knows exactly the fullness of what he was preaching. Peter talks about that. Uh, but it was the Spirit of Christ who is preaching through them, it could be the same meaning here. And it could be that the Spirit of Christ proclaimed to the spirits, that is, to people who have now, been, who have now died, who are now in prison. So it's not that Jesus went to hell or went to spiritual prison to preach to them, but he, he preached to spirits who are now in prison. And the reason that you would make that connection is because, in verse 20, look at it, they formerly did not obey. They're in prison now because formerly they did not obey. But the preaching happened in that former time through Noah. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So the idea of this second interpretation is this. God looked out on the world in the days of Noah, and he said, everybody's totally wicked and evil. I'm going to destroy everybody. But we're told that Noah found favor in God's eyes. Not because Noah wasn't wicked. It's because God put grace upon Noah and saved him and made him righteous. And through Noah, God proclaimed the coming judgment to the world. But they didn't listen. And they perished in the flood. I tend that way. I, I tend to this text being that Jesus preached to the world through Noah. The Spirit of Christ preached to the world through Noah, but nobody listened even while the ark was being prepared. How long did that take? I, I don't know. Scott could answer that for us probably. Do you know off the top of your head? How long did it take to make the ark? Like 100 years? 120 years. So, so this is not as though God was not being patient. But for 120 years, God was preaching the gospel. Saying, you're wicked. Repent. Come into the ark. Or perish. So he was very patient with them. And at the end of 120 years, you have this great object lesson. Hasn't rained. Noah's building a big boat in the middle of the wilderness. People are coming by and laughing at him and ridiculing him and persecuting him. And he preaches the gospel. I am making this ark because 
judgment is coming, and there's going to be a flood. And people scoffed at him, and God was patient. And at the end of 120 years, out of all the people that saw the ark and heard the gospel, count them, eight people repented. Eight people went into the ark. Now, we're not many people here today, but we're more than eight. Can you imagine in the whole world if there was only eight of us left that believed in Jesus Christ? And that's the point. When you're suffering, remember Noah and the other seven. Remember the eight. This is why I don't think it's helpful to get into did Jesus go down into hell and all of that. Because Peter's point is very pastoral. What Peter is trying to help the people uh, to understand their suffering, to feel comfort in their suffering. And, And he's saying, when you suffer, remember Noah. Because how would it have felt to the people that Peter was writing to? I feel so alone. The church is just a small little group of people in this big, powerful Roman Empire. And you're telling me that i got to submit myself to the emperor? The, the, the man who in less than a year from now is going to be uh, dressing us up in animal skins and having us devoured by dogs and lions? The man who's going to light us on fire? The man who's going to blame us for something that he probably did. You want me to submit to him? Do you, do you know the powers against us right now? How many people are, are against us in the Roman Empire? And what Peter says is, well, think about Noah. What must it have been like for him to spend over a century building an ark to preach the gospel day in and day out. Do you think that came with some suffering? He was the laughing stock of the world. Do you, do you think he ever in, in, was inflicted with physical abuse? Bible doesn't say. But in the course of 120 years, I would be surprised if this group of people described in Genesis 6 They thought only wicked things all the time. If the worst that Noah faced was ridicule. I I would wager to say that it was a dangerous, um, dangerous occupation to build the ark and to preach the gospel. To preach judgment against people. If I preach judgment against you for 40 minutes, do you think you'd be ready to leave? How about 120 years? People who preach the coming judgment are not well-liked. Noah suffered. Now, secondarily, at the end of 120 years of his ministry, eight people were converted. You feel small? In the Roman Empire, just think about Noah. He was so alone. When you suffer then, remember Noah. When it seems like the whole world is against you, when your faith in Christ causes you to suffer, remember Noah and the seven others who suffered in their generation were saved. And then for us, uh, there are millions of people all over the world. We are not alone. There are Tens of thousands of Christians in Barrie, I don't know that for sure, but hopefully, 
if not tens of thousands, let's go with hundreds and thousands. We're not alone, even in Barry. And even if we were, if we were the last Christians on the face of the earth in this room right now, and everyone else was against us, and everyone was lined up outside, and we feared for our life just leaving this gathering this morning. It is better to be among the few who suffer and are saved than the many who do not suffer and perish. Which brings us to our last point. Remember your baptism. This is what you're signing up for when you're baptized. Baptism is a decision to suffer with Christ. Take a look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism, which corresponds to this. What what does that mean, which corresponds to this? What he's saying is, when you're baptized, did you not realize that you are identifying not only with Jesus, but you are also identifying with Noah? I don't know if we often think about that, but the tradition of baptism began in Genesis 6. So it says, when you're being baptized, before you say, I want to be baptized, I want to give my public testimony, and I want to live for Christ, I want you to think through what you're doing. You're identifying with Christ, and you are also identifying with Noah. And let me just say it to you a different way. By identifying with Noah, you're identifying with Christ. And we'll see how that plays out. That Jesus is the fulfillment of our identification with Noah. That in identifying with Noah, we are identifying with Christ. And this brings us back to typology, which we've talked about. And what a typology is, is like a blueprint, if you'll remember. There are, a blueprint gives you a, an idea in two dimensions of a three-dimensional space. And, and so what, what Peter here is saying is, before you unite yourself publicly with Jesus Christ, that's the three-dimensional commitment. Just take a look at the two-dimensional commitment, which is your, your uh, union with Noah, your identity with Noah. Let's take a look at this. Every typology has three parts. You have that which corresponds between the, the typology and, and the antitype or the real thing. Then there's some sort of escalation as these points of similarity find greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And then, and then at the end of that, you have to ask yourself, what's the theological point here? So the, the point is, G, Peter here says, baptism corresponds to baptism. Bat- Baptism, no, sorry, let me say it this way. Noah and the ark and the flood corresponds to baptism. Baptism is your union with Christ, your public declaration of that. So where are the points of similarity? What do you mean that Noah and the ark and the flood corresponds to baptism? Well, these are the elements that we're going to see in, in, in common. Suffering, which is the context for this whole, whole thing. Noah suffered. God's judgment and wrath. 
In the days of Noah, the whole point was God looked down and he says, I'm going to destroy the world because I find them guilty of sin. And I'm tired of putting up with their sin. So the time of judgment has come. I am righteous and holy and I'm going to judge the world. And now is the time for judgment. That's, that's the context of Genesis 6 to 8, which always astounds me that we then decorate our nursery with that, right? Oh, little baby, you're so cute. Now I want you to think about the judgment. Um, I don't know. It's, we make it look really cute, but it wasn't cute, right? It's God's wrath coming down in our nurseries to our little ones. Uh, there's water in both, right? The flood. That's what, what Peter's really thinking about. There was, there was water in the flood. There's water in baptism. The ark. Well, Noah went, well, I'm getting into escalation here, but you have Noah in the ark, that comes through the water. I'm going to have to probably repeat some of this. In baptism, we're also getting into a, an ark to come through water. And then there's salvation. So it starts with judgment. Then there's water, which is the execution of that judgment. Then you get into the ark, which brings you through the water. And then you, cu- you come out on the other side into a new earth. Noah came out. And there was a new earth. And he had a fresh start. So that's that's. Genesis. Now, what's the escalation? Noah suffered. We don't know the extent of his suffering, but he suffered. We know the extent of Christian suffering. The expectation when you're baptized. And I don't know if, if you've been baptized, if you knew that this is what you're saying. When you are baptized, what you're saying is, I'm ready to die for Christ. Jesus will accept nothing less than that. I'm ready to suffer to the point of death. Now, in Peter's day, that was so clear. If you, you sign up to be a Christian, you might die. In our context, it's not so clear. But I'm here to tell you that that's the expectation of baptism. In Noah's day, the judgment was against a generation. But in baptism, what we're saying is that there is a final judgment coming against every person who has ever lived. In Noah's day, the judgment was by water. Peter loves thinking about Noah. In 2 Peter 3, he says, the universe is going to be destroyed by fire. That's escalation. God is going to uncreate everything that he created. And if you are not in some kind of ark, you will perish in that judgment of fire. Which brings us to the ark. God had Noah actually build a barge. And he got a bunch of animals on there, a nice zoo. And his family, they came through the water. That was all a picture of Jesus Christ. That's the correspondence and the escalation. The ark is Christ. The only way to get through the fire of the final judgment is to be found in Christ. How do you get into Christ? You believe in him. Salvation. Uh, Noah was saved for another several hundred years. But if you are in Christ, you are saved forever and ever. Noah and his family, the ark came, landed on Mount Ararat. They got out. Wow, this is a new earth. 
He could say it was a new earth, even though it was the same earth, because it was made new by, by flood. And a fresh start, new earth. Well, we will be given a new heavens and a new earth. The, the universe that God will destroy by fire, he will raise back to life and existence. And it will be a new heavens and a new earth. It will be qualitatively superior to the universe in which we live now. Now, what's the vision? Well, the, the theological underpinning to all of this is you better know who God is. God judges sin. He judged sin in Noah's day. He's going to judge sin at the end of the age. And in the judgment, most perished in Noah's day, and most will perish at the final judgment. Only a few are saved by God's grace. Those who are in the ark and those who are in Christ. And if the numbers are also typological, I know it says that there are so many people that you can't count them who will be saved. And that's true, but there are also so many people that have ever existed and lived that you can't count. If the numbers are at all typological, think about eight out of the whole world, so few will be found in Christ. Will you be found in Christ? So baptism then is, is this, if you can just picture, and if you didn't picture this when you were baptized the first time, uh, or first time, when you were baptized, then picture it retroactively and just import that back in time. Picture Noah stepping onto the ark. And he's into the ark and he's safe. When you go to be baptized, picture yourself stepping into Christ. And what you are saying is, I am safe for the final judgment of fire. When you suffer then, remember your baptism, which corresponds to the flood. Keep the right perspective. Choose the lesser suffering which is immediate over the greater suffering which endures forever. Now, I'm not making light of martyrdom. I don't want to be martyred. I don't even know if I have the strength to be martyred. I, it's something I don't even know because I have never been challenged by. And I just, I just depend on God's grace. If he asks me to die for him, that he would give me the grace in that moment to die with, with, gladly. I can't just stand here and tell you that I'm ready for that right now. But I want to say this. Martyrdom is the lesser suffering. It doesn't matter how painful that death might be. It is the lesser suffering than to not be found in Christ. So choose the lesser suffering which is immediate over the greater suffering, which endures forever. Now, we talked about marriage at the beginning. Let's carry through. If martyrdom, the most painful martyrdom that you could imagine, is the lesser suffering, how much more is a marriage that is not up to what you hoped it would be a lesser suffering? It's a lesser suffering. And what Jesus says is, if you're going to live for me and you're going to, 
you're going to serve your, your husband or you're going to serve your wife. You're going to think of your husband or your wife more than yourself. That's going to cause suffering. Do it. Do it for me, says Jesus. Because that's a lesser suffering than to come to the end and not to be found in me. Now, what's Peter's point in all of this? If you become a Christian, you will suffer. It might even cost you your life. But when you suffer, remember Jesus. Remember Noah. Remember your baptism. Baptism, therefore, is a call to suffering. When you are baptized, you declare, I am in Christ. Being in Christ, I know that I have safe passage through death. I know that I have safe passage through the final judgment. I will get come out on the other side into the new heavens and the new earth. I am in Christ. And I, because I know that I'm in Christ and I know where I'm going at the end, I am willing to suffer now. Whether that's ridicule or martyrdom, whether it's as bad or not as bad as the suffering of Christians under Nero. I am ready to suffer, and therefore I am being baptized. If you're not ready to suffer for Christ now, then you're not ready to be baptized, and you might not be saved. This is hard. I just want to make one last point before we pray. And this is unrelated, but I think important for us. I want you to notice that baptism doesn't start with John the Baptist. The tradition of baptism starts at the flood. If we're going to have a biblical theology of baptism as a church then, we have to understand what God is doing from the beginning of his scriptures all the way up to the point where Jesus is uh, baptized. You know why Jesus was baptized? It was so that he could become the ark of God. And the dove descended on him just as the dove descended on the ark. That's why the, the Holy Spirit doesn't actually look like a dove. He descended like a dove to make the point. Here's your ark. In the Jordan River, Jesus is pointing us back to Genesis 6 through 9. And he's saying, get on the ark. Which means that the seeds of baptism come far earlier than circumcision. And there is a debate in the church about whether or not, in, this, in the big church, about whether or not baptism is the new covenant uh, replacement for circumcision. And I would just argue circumcision uh, is first mentioned in Genesis 17. Baptism is mentioned in, uh, yeah, baptism is mentioned in Genesis 6. That's 11 chapters sooner than circumcision. And it's 400 years before Abraham was baptized that Noah went through the flood. Thus, baptism and circumcision are not the same thing. That's what we, we believe anyway. We don't believe that people who believe that are not saved. We, we have Christian fellowship with, with beautiful uh, Christians who, who believe that, that baptism is a new covenant uh, version of circumcision. But that's not what we believe as a church. We believe that baptism predate circumcision, and they, they drive to two different theological points. One is to be united with Christ through the judgment. The other is to have your heart circumcised, the, the sin cut out and nailed to the cross. Both powerful points fulfilled in Christ. 
Are you ready to suffer? Think on your baptism. If you did not declare that day that you are ready to suffer, declare it today, and God will hear you. Let's pray. Oh, God, I, I thank you for the time you've given us to, to look at this. And I thank you for Peter, who, who wrote in a time when Christians knew that to be baptized was to suffer. And we confess to you that we, we come to you, we are baptized, we call ourselves Christians, and our expectation is that we will prosper. Maybe not in the way that the prosperity gospel means it, but we expect to, to have every advantage that our unbelieving friends and neighbors and families have. Many of us have never stopped to count the cost. So I pray that as we pause now, in the silence of our hearts, help us to count the cost of what it means to be united with Christ by baptism. O oh Lord, grant us the grace to suffer for Christ's sake and be glad. Comfort those who are suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.